0: It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Coming in 3, 2, 1. Astronomy Cast, Episode 559 The Surface of the Sun. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. With me, as always, is Dr. Pamela Gay, a senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmoQuest.
1: Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I, I'm doing well, and I'm so pleased to say that since our last episode, when we said uh, that we're looking for help with CosmoQuest's open source project, mm-hmm. I've had a number of Astronomy Cast people show up on CosmoQuest's Discord, and um, we're pulling together a great group of humans. So thank you. All the humans out there interested in helping us with Cosmo
0: And let's say a person uh, didn't hear that first call for, for help and may still want to throw some code into the, I don't know, my analogy is falling apart here. GitHub. Into falling the into GitHub. the GitHub. Yeah, throw yeah. some code at the GitHub. Um, uh, how can people get involved?
1: The, the best thing that you can do is go over to CosmoQuest.org, click on the Discord link, and... Say hi in the Volunteers Reporting for Duty channel, and we will add you to our coders group, add you to the GitHub repo, and off we shall fly, open source away.
0: That sounds great. All right, so a brand new telescope has been completed on Maui's Haleakala, and it has just one job to watch the sun in unprecedented detail. It's called the Daniel K. Inouye Telescope, and the engineering involved to get this instrument operational are matched by the incredible resolution of its first images. And I think we need to apologize in advance to everyone who is listening to this episode conveniently as a podcast, because I'm probably going to be showing some pictures. We are going to be talking about... Uh, one of the most incredible images of the sun that has ever been taken. And so I think the hope here is that the listeners are already familiar with this image, and now they're waiting for their favorite astronomy explainers to follow up and give them some, some context to what it is. But if you don't, I'm sure we'll have a link in the show notes, search for sun surface picture on google and you will have this incredible picture if if you get hungry for caramel corn you are you are looking at the right image
1: and and if you go find it on youtube you're just gonna like want to stare at the sun surface with this telescope not with your eyeballs it's so
0: beautiful (laughs) Um, that's a that's a bug's life reference okay so uh Let's talk about this picture. Let's talk okay. about this telescope.
1: Where should we start? Let's start with the telescope. Okay. Well, it's hard to talk about an image when you know nothing about the telescope. One of the things that we've brought up over and over and over on this show is you can get higher resolution images by using telescopes with a larger diameter. You can do this with interferometry. You can do this with larger collecting areas. And to date, we've never gone too gung-ho collecting light from the surface of the sun because the sun is a giant, hot, boiling ball right. of plasma, and its light can melt things.
0: Yeah, and then when you concentrate it with a mirror, as we have seen with what you do when you have a magnifying glass,
1: yeah,
0: uh, you you turn this sunlight into a laser beam. <laughs>
1: I, I have inadvertently started fires twice with telescopes looking in at the sun.
0: Yeah, I have merely destroyed a telescope.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I've been very good about not destroying telescopes. It's yeah. just the things around them I keep <laughs> setting on fire. I'm not
0: sure which one is worse. I'm going to say <laughs> that what you've done is worse than what I've done. I've merely destroyed a $200 telescope. You've tried to light a house on fire.
1: Mm, a piece of paper and some carpeting. Yeah. But, uh... <laughs> That's
0: funny. Um, right. So uh, uh, trying to magnify the light from the sun is madness. And yet, in order and to yet. see detailed images of the surface of the sun, you want to magnify
1: the image. How can this be done? What wizardry? It's very... Wizardry is the correct answer. So every single aspect of this telescope is designed to make this system as safe as possible and to prevent any excess heat. This means that the dome has a unique design where instead of having the normal roll-up slit that leaves this big stripe of opening into the dome they have a circular annulus that opens up that is matched to only let in enough sunlight to illuminate the entirety of the four meter mirror that's on this telescope so they start by restricting how much light gets into the dome
0: yeah So, they and and so just before you continue on, a four, it's I think it's like what a 4.2 meter mirror. Yeah. That's it's that's a big mirror. I mean,
1: it's not and it's super thin, it's 75 millimeters thick, right? So, this is a system that they can do adaptive optics with and. Yeah. It's also thin so that it doesn't overheat. Right. This is one of the amazing mirrors that came out of the Mirror Lab in Arizona.
0: Right, um, and so it's got these actuators underneath the surface of this of the primary mirror that allow it to to make minor distortions and and try to compensate for the atmosphere that's above it. Um, so you've got this this enormous amount of light going into this this four-meter, 4.2-meter hole on the side of the, this observatory, bouncing off of this prime getting focused.
1: Now, and- now I, I do have to step back and say that while the mirror is more than four meters in size, they're only utilizing four meters of the mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this is a design where they're not going all the way out to the edge when they use it. Right. And they also are focusing it in a kind of crazy way, which is also part of why they're not using the entirety of the mirror. They didn't want to have to put anything in the path of the sunlight. Right. So they have the light coming in through that exactly sized hole in the dome of the telescope. The sunlight goes through that hole, hits the mirror, which is tilted and shaped ever so slightly to direct the light out of the side of, of the incoming light. So the light comes in, bounces sideways, gets focused onto a secondary liquid cooled metal donut of a system.
0: Yeah. They call this the heat stop.
1: And this incredible system eliminates 95 percent right. of the heat this this prevents them from melting anything further down <laughs> right and i
0: think that the thing that's really important so a couple of things there as you're saying right like with a traditional solar telescope you put your the block you know whatever you're going to use to decrease the brightness of the sun you put that at in front of the main hole on the telescope so if you've got yes. a newtonian telescope you put it in front of the entire before the light can even get inside your telescope, you've already shaded it.
1: They're and, not and, doing that.
0: And they're not doing that. They're they're waiting. And so and so the and the reason, if I understand, is that they don't want to have even like slight problems with whatever filter they would have to put in front of it, that would decrease the quality of the image.
1: So their goal is To remove anything that might create contrast issues, remove anything that might create optical aberrations, remove basically anything extra that they don't absolutely have to have. The light comes in, they have 95% of the light from all four meters of the telescope going up to this donut. So they're keeping the resolution and throwing out unnecessary light so they can still do all the science they want and get maximal resolution out of their detector. Now, at this point, it starts to act more like a normal telescope. They're shooting the light down to what's called a coude focus. This is where you have some sort of a split that takes the light and moves it from that room that your telescope is living in and generally shoots it to the basement somehow.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Lots of telescopes do this in different ways. The 107-inch telescope at McDonald Observatory, which I've used the Coudé spectroscope on, it shoots it through the the pier of the telescope, down through the floor and into a different room using mirrors. The Hobby eberly Telescope... It uses fiber optics to do this. Lots of telescopes nowadays are accomplishing this with fiber optics. They pick off the light, move it through the cables, get it into their big basement room. Now, the reason you're using this big basement room is so that you can have massive instruments to spread the light out, to create spectra, do all sorts of amazing stuff. And normally you have some sort of rotational system to keep things fairly aligned, but you're looking at stars. So you're not looking for too long and you're not worried about rotation too much. They're looking at the sun. All the day long. The entire day. Yeah. Yeah. And so they do what I consider to be one of the most crazy, awesome things I have ever seen done with a coup broom. They're rotating the whole darn room.
0: The whole room just turns to keep the instruments aligned with the the telescope and everything that's bouncing around.
1: This is a 150-ton platform of instruments that they are precisely rotating as they track the sun. So their tracking isn't just moving a four-meter telescope – Their tracking isn't just moving very precisely a dome. And domes normally don't have to move precisely. Um, They have to track the dome precisely, track the telescope precisely, and track the 150-ton CUDE laboratory precisely. This is remarkable engineering. I, I can't imagine what the construction company they went to originally thought when they were asked, can you make this entire room track the sun? Yes, they could, but (laughs) probably not anything anyone expected they'd be doing when they got their mechanical engineering degrees. Um, It's a feat of engineering. Yeah, it really
0: is. Um, One of the other feats of engineering is just temperature control. I mean, again, you're bringing in, I think it's like 12 kilowatts of energy uh non-stop continuously just bringing in enormous amounts of energy into this enclosed space and you have to get rid of it
1: yeah and and they do this through a variety of ways they have first of all extra air gaps in this case rooms between the dome floor and then when you get down to the instrumentation uh Having extra rooms, well, it's sort of like having storm windows in your house. Those air gaps provide a place where heat gets dumped and then doesn't get transferred. And then they just are coolanting everything. that donut i'm just going to be in yeah awe yeah so while. they if you
0: look at the outside of the of the actual um shutter the outside of the dome they've got these these flappy shutters Universe. that are yeah that are all across the outside of it and so they can do a lot of really sort of uh high in quick quick very quick response temperature control uh they make ice in the observatory at night when it's cooler on the top of this mountain and then they pump it through they use this as a way to to run coolant through the entire system there's like 7 kilometers of coolant uh piping throughout this entire instrument so again and as you said they have all this air gapping inside that that they can then also use to to try to, to maintain the T. And so the goal is to just, that every single part of this entire telescope, from the mirror to the instruments, all the way down to the ground level, the whole thing is precisely the same temperature all the time.
1: And and that is really the key. And this is a problem that we've been trying to solve with telescopes for a while now. Once our telescopes got good enough, we realized air is the enemy because if you have temperature variations in the air, each of those temperature variations will bend the light. Air can act like a lens. It's super annoying. Now, with a regular everyday telescope, you open the dome, you turn on some fans, you make sure all the doors are open, and you're good enough. But as we've started building bigger and bigger telescopes, they have had to start figuring out how to add all of these basically Venetian blind systems that open up and circulate all the air so all day long inside these nighttime telescopes you run air conditioning to try and keep the room at the temperature you expect the nighttime to be well here they're flipping that on its head and they're trying to keep everything the temperature it's going to be during the day and not have any greenhouse effect going on so just like our cars will heat up in the sunlight domes will heat up in the sunlight and that would be death and you're bringing all that heat accuracy and you're bringing in heat yeah so essentially they're bringing in heat and they have to constantly prevent that heat from heating up the air and it's not easy and they have figured it out yeah and this is where i think we should start talking about these amazing images
0: let's do that and so again if if you if you need to pause the podcast Uh, go get yourself in front of a browser and take a look at the pictures that that this 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 incredible telescope has has taken and so now assuming that you have done this uh or you're kind of familiar or you're just going to sort of follow along with us um uh tell us uh and i'm going to show the picture for the people who are watching this as the live stream but tell us kind of what we're looking at
1: so the the image that that this telescope produced is a series of hot cells that are yellowy in the center, fade out, and then are surrounded by inky black darkness. Now, the crazy thing is that inky black darkness is still super bright. What, what we're seeing is slight temperature variations in the surface of the sun where convective cells of hot gas are rising up and then through the center they're rising up and then cascading down as they give off their heat to outer space. And because luminosity goes as temperature to the fourth power, the very small temperature variations from the center of these convective cells out to the cool edges of these convective cells. Well, they have amazing differences in luminosity that because of the limiting contrast of what we can do with images and eyeballs, we perceive as dark outlines around bright cells. And and, and so sorry. So
0: like the bright parts that we're seeing, Mm-hmm. Those are the hottest parts, the parts where the sun is actually blobbing out its convective material from the interior. And then the darker regions are still insanely
1: hot. Yes.
0: Just less hot than the actual bright surface.
1: And and what makes these particular images so remarkable it is each of these convective cells is roughly the size of france or texas which are remarkably about the same size but texas is bigger Uh, these convective cells on the sun are the size of france or texas and we can make them out not just as like a few pixels across but as Gazillion, not literally gazillions, but as a lot of pixels across, because this instrument can resolve features that are just 12 miles or 20 kilometers in size.
0: Yeah. So the little, if you like really zoom in on the image and you can see individual pixels, these are on the order of Twelve, as you say, you know, like 20 kilometers across. And when you think about the fact that we're seeing these images from 150 million kilometers away, it's just an incredible feat of, of engineering and astronomy to be able to do this.
1: And the entire field of view for this telescope is, is measured in arc seconds. This is an extremely high-resolution system, We're never going to get full disk of the sun. Heck, there may be sunspots that come up that are bigger than this telescope can see. But with this kind of resolution, even now in its engineering phase, we're seeing things that when you try and look up information on them, current publications say can't be resolved, not well understood bright things yeah faculi are what i'm thinking of here we know that there are magnetic effects that occur in those dark boundaries between individual convective cells and these bright magnetic effects aren't well understood and this may be how we finally are able to understand them This telescope is still in the process of being commissioned. We're talking about it now because we're getting amazing images off of it. And the time is right to say, photosphere, here we come. The top 50 miles of the surface of the sun is about to be ours to understand in detail. So then what is the
0: point? Now,
1: obviously,
0: it's incredible to see these high-resolution images of the sun but what is it good for?
1: How does this make my (laughs) life better? Well, it's hopefully going to help us better understand solar weather, better be able to make predictions of what's going on. The top layer of the sun, while generally kind of ignored because it's not as striking as the, the higher up layers, this, this, Photospheric layer, it varies from hot spot to cold spot between about 4,500 degrees and 6,000 degrees Kelvin. That's 4,200 to 5,700 Celsius. And the effects that occur at this level lead into bigger and bigger effects as you go up in the sun's atmosphere. The faculi that we see as bright nothings at the surface of the sun, at the photosphere, End up growing into bigger and bigger things called flages as you get higher up in the atmosphere. These can end up forming coronal loops that, in the outermost layer of the sun, these are the big magnetic loops that we see that, when they let loose, can blast particles our direction that take out communication right. satellites. And, and
0: that's like, if you want the real practical advantage for observing the sun at this level of detail, advance warning of a solar storm, that's going to cause a serious disruption to our modern interconnected human society is, is the benefit that you enjoy is some advanced warning. Like right now, what do we get? Like two hours of notice that there's a significant solar storm inbound because we're starting yeah. to detect the first particles smashing Hitting into the solar earth.
1: dynamic. Well, it, we also, so this is where solar dynamic orbiter has so far played such an important role. This little spacecraft that can is sitting out balanced between the gravity of the earth and the sun close enough to the sun that particles hit it and thanks to the speed of light being so much faster than the speed of particles it can go earth there's stuff coming yeah and we can safety things we can send astronauts for cover if we need to yeah and that early warning is amazing now what would be even better is predictive models this is the the difference between a uh, looking at radar right now and seeing a tornado on radar heading towards your house and having satellite images that allow you to predict a potentially dangerous storm is brewing. Right. Right now we use spacecraft to predict weather on earth. Well now we're going to use earth based telescopes to predict weather on the sun more effectively than we can do with spacecraft. And I love this interplay of how we really need, all these different kinds of observations to make sense of what we're learning. And the
0: hope here is that we'll get a couple of days of notice, that astronomers will see these features on the sun, see them brewing, see a, a burp forming on the yes. sun, that's going, and, and understand how all of these these pieces are connected, right? When you look at that picture of the, of the, the roiling bubbling surface of the sun, how do you know that any one of those areas is about to cause a, a coronal mass ejection? It's just, you just don't. And so, but being able to sort of track back and use, as you say, these predictive models of the sun, we'll get to this point where suddenly now astronomers can look at all these regions and go, okay, you know, it, You wouldn't have known before, but now we do know that this region right here that is slowly rotating towards the Earth, um, like the Death Star, is about to let off a blast that could cause a problem. And so unplug the electronics that you care about, you know?
1: And what's more, as we're looking to start putting human beings in space outside of the Earth's magnetic field, Moon, Mars, wherever... We may only have a small volume of space that is adequately protected from radiation that they can stay healthy if their spacecraft gets hit by a burst of energy from the sun. Having this kind of predictive model will tell them perhaps ahead of time, hey, maybe you want to come back to the Earth a few days earlier if you're on the moon. Hey, get ready to go into hiding as you're on your way to Mars. We are lucky to have our magnetic fields And so we, first of all, need to be afraid, just like you say, of another what we call a Carrington event, a massive burst of energy from the sun capable of doing bad things to our power grid, to our satellites, to our astronauts in low Earth orbit. We also need to be able to predict what's going to happen at the moon, at Mars. All these things are necessary to keep the science flowing and the humans alive. Well, and I want to know when I should go and see auroras. Well, yeah, you know, that's like,
0: true, too. Right now, all we get too. is we get a couple of hours of warning that there's a rural activity. Not even we get, you know, there's a rural activity right now. Well, it's too late for me to book my trip to Iceland. But if I could get two days notice that there's going to be a big storm coming, then I can book my trip to Iceland and go and enjoy really powerful auroras. With
1: I was going to say road trip to Canada, but sure.
0: Sure. That place, yeah. <laughs> it's a big country. It's easier to fly to Iceland than a road trip in Canada. And it's m- true. much better equipped than, you know, Northern Canada is a is a hard place to be. Well, um, I, I got to say being in Iceland is a is a quite luxurious experience. I, I, I quite liked it. Even in the wintertime, right? Wintertime in Iceland is delightful compared to Still wintertime in Canada. Yeah. Still yeah. on the bucket list. Yeah. Still on the bucket list. So, I mean, this, all we've seen right now is the first light images. Chances are, you know, you're going to get bored of. You know, because every image is going to kind of look like this, you know, just different flavors of of variations on roiling plasma on the surface of the sun. But we are going to see sunspots and other interesting features over time as well. So
1: Now, this instrument won't be fully built until this summer. They're aiming for having all the spectrographs, all the polarimeters, all of the devices that will allow us to study even more effectively the The outer layers, the temperature, the magnetic fields. This summer, yeah. it's coming. Yeah, you so just have first more light. More
0: instruments coming, so stay tuned. Uh, right on! I'm I'm super excited about this, and uh, I did a video on my YouTube channel as well. So if people want to follow even more information, uh, they can follow that there. Pamela, do you have some names for us this week? I
1: I do. As always, we are brought to you by you. We are so grateful to all Very of our recursive. patreons. Well, it's true. Yep. It's true. Um, we we are so grateful to all of our patrons over on patreon.com slash astronomycast. If you can support us, please do. If you can't, we totally get it. Just leave us a review somewhere. <laughs> Help people find our show. We're good. Um, so I really want to thank. This week, Jordan Young, Burry Gowan, Frada Tanbao, Ramji Ananthu, Andrew Palestra, David Troig, Brian Cagle, The Giant Nothing, Laura Kettleson, Robert Palaisma, Corey Devali, Paul Garman, Les Howard, Joe Cunningham, Emily Patterson, A Blip in the Universe, Infantesmal Ripple in Space Time, and Ed.
0: Awesome. Thank you, everybody. And, uh, and as always, Pamela, thank you for bringing the knowledge. And we will see everyone next week. Sounds great. Bye. See you all later. You are listening to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. <laughs> The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After 10 years, the three. 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye.